0: This is Science Friday. I'm Flora Lichtman, sitting in for Ira Flato. Later in the hour, a trip to Alaska to see how gold mining has changed the landscape. And everything you need to know about sea otters. But first, on Wednesday, the Indian space agency ISRO celebrated as its Chandrayaan 3 craft successfully made a soft landing at the lunar South Pole. People are applauding, let us all wait to hear from the Secretary Department of Space and Chairman ISRO, Sri S. Somnath. Sir, we have achieved soft landing on the moon. India is on the moon. The control room cheers always give me chills. Joining me now to talk about that and other stories from the week in science is Maggie Kurth, science journalist and editorial lead for Carbon Plan. Welcome back to Science Friday.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So this seems like a big deal for India's space program.
1: Yeah, so they are the first country now to put an unmanned lander on the moon's south pole. And this is particularly important because it's coming right after Russia failed to do the same thing earlier in the week. Uh, that russian lander that crashed on the moon last weekend
0: was trying to hit the same area aside from being a point of pride what is the purpose of the mission well so this is kind of interesting it's part of a growing
1: space race that is really about who has access to water resources on the moon like you can kind of imagine this as outer space chinatown this is india it is russia it is china the u.s is interested And this is all because back in 2009, people found water on the moon's surface and ice under the surface, and the South Pole appears to have the highest concentrations of that. It's important for scientific reasons. You know, we're talking about water that is ancient, and it could teach us a lot about the solar system and even how oceans on Earth got started. Mm. But what everybody is really getting excited about now is because this is also the main way you would get drinking water and water for industrial purposes in a future lunar settlement.
0: So what happened with Russia's craft earlier in the week?
1: All that is really known right now is that it was supposed to be landing and instead had crashed a day before it was supposed to be landing on the surface, I believe. It's not really clear exactly what happened that made it crash. One of the things I think is really interesting here is that this isn't a like, put up a flag and now it's yours kind of situation. Nobody can actually own the moon, thanks to a bunch of international treaties. But there's nothing that's stopping commercial water mining. And Mm -hmm. so you have these countries, and in particular, the private companies that a lot of countries are increasingly outsourcing space stuff to they see that as a crucial resource and as a kind of way into a new business far in the future.
0: Hmm. It's almost like a lunar land grab. A
1: little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Except you can't actually grab the land. You can only grab the the resources.
0: Moving on from the moon, some genetics news. The Y chromosome has been fully mapped. Yeah. So scientists finished the final step in sequencing
1: the entire human genome. And that is thanks to a pair of studies that together sequence Y chromosomes from dozens of men. For a really long time, everybody thought of the Y chromosome as sort of this junk space, uh, an X chromosome that had already shrunk by half and was just gonna keep withering away. There's tons of weird repeats. There's these inversions of sequences. It's just this mess, and it made it really hard to sequence.
0: So what are we learning from these
1: new studies? So these two papers, One of them sequenced the Y chromosome of one European man whose whole genome has now been sequenced, and the second study sequenced just the Y chromosomes of dozens of men from all over the planet. And one thing that, taken together, these studies make clear is that the apparent mess of the Y chromosome, it isn't just nonsense chaos. So these Y chromosomes varied widely between men. For example, you had like one guy with 23 copies of a specific gene while another man had 39, but they also found that the repetition isn't totally random. There's patterns to it. And what's more, the genes are conserved because of this repetition in a way that suggests the Y chromosome isn't actually disappearing at all. And it's still going to take a while to figure out what practical knowledge can come from this. But in the meantime, we know more about this thing than we ever did before. And it seems to be a lot more interesting than we maybe thought.
0: In other biology news, research into the camouflaging skin cells of the hogfish. Tell me about this.
1: Yeah, so this I love this. So this study started because a scientist who also loves fishing watched a dead hogfish change color to match the deck of her fishing boat. Oh, wow. Yeah, like it had a, a one of the one of the stories I was reading said it had like a spear fishing hole right <sighs> through it. So this was like a very dead fish, not like just partial dead.
0: <laughs> and it was still able to change color.
1: Yeah. And it, it turns out after tons of research, what she has found is that these hogfish have a previously unknown kind of cell in their bodies these skin cells that contain light-detecting proteins you normally see in, like, human retinas.
0: Wow. So it's almost like the skin is a system unto un- itself, like it's it doesn't need the brain to do this color-changing magic. It seems like it doesn't.
1: So these researchers found that the hogfish has one of these cells for every one of their color-changing cells. And the, the cells work together to kind of uh, adjust to light levels and adjust to like sort of what's going on around them. And given the fact that the fish can't even see their own skin with their eyes when they're alive, this all suggests that the ability to camouflage is being driven by the skin itself. And wow. these light and color changing cells are working on a body wide system that can fine-tune color and pattern without much input from the brain.
0: Wow, that's so cool. I see an opportunity for a hogfish coat. Like, it's a step before the invisibility cloak, you know? It's oh, my like God. The, the camouflage cloak.
1: I I assume that, that Mr. Burns has one of those in his closet as we speak.
0: <laughs> in other news, cyber attackers are targeting telescopes. Why?
1: so we don't know cyber attackers are hitting these space telescopes no one's really sure why or what to do about it uh nor lab is this national science foundation funded coordinating center for ground-based astronomy and on august 1st they announced that a telescope in hawaii had been targeted by a cyber attack according to this report in science that attack has since led the lab to shut down operations at multiple telescopes in both hawaii and chile and in some cases, the observatories can still observe, but they can't be operated remotely anymore. And so the researchers around the world are like rushing grad students to the scene to operate the telescopes in person. <gasps> there's there's all sorts of wild stuff happening. Drama. Because, yeah. Well, and this really affects research because when you're talking about astronomy, you're talking about research that has to be done in these very specific windows of time. So if you can't point the telescope where it needs to go at the right time, you're going to lose like a year's worth of work.
0: Staying in space for a moment. So we know that space junk is a problem. Debris left in orbit from launches and broken satellites. Uh, And it sounds like an attempt to clean some of it up has hit a snag. I love explaining this.
1: Um, So a big hunk of rocket that the European Space Agency had planned to remove from Earth orbit as part of this demonstration of how we can remove space junk has instead been hit by space junk and now shattered into smaller pieces. And this might sound at first like the space junk is just taking itself out, but I regret to inform that it is actually a cautionary tale about this total trash pile we have floating around the Earth.
0: Because now there's just tons of tiny little shards in addition to the big chunk?
1: Yeah, the the smaller pieces are actually one of the biggest dangers of space junk. Like, sort of imagine you don't want a tree to hit your house in a tornado, but you also really don't want a whole bunch of branches hitting your house all at once either.
0: Right. I guess that the small pieces must be also impossible to clean up.
1: They're a lot harder to clean up. So the ESA is now having to reevaluate what's going to happen with this demonstration project and whether they're going to be able to do what they originally set out to do. And space junk is increasingly a really big deal. When you're talking about just the objects that are uh, bigger than four inches wide, There's more than 36,000 of them out there. And when you start to include everything we can possibly track, which is objects down to just 0.04 inches wide, you're talking about hundreds of millions of things that can crash into satellites and the space station and damage
0: stuff. Wow. Wow. Finally, there's that line from the movie Alien that, in space, no one can hear you scream. But it sounds like that may not actually be true. Well, with a lot of technological fiddling, scientists have
1: found a way to make sound waves travel through a vacuum, but only for very short distances. So you and the alien and the person you're screaming to kind of have to be, like, (laughs) hugging Sound doesn't travel in a vacuum because sound is actually like it's a physical thing. At a very tiny level, sound is a shove. It's the movement of particles as they vibrate and jostle and they eventually bang into the solid surface of your eardrum. And in space, the particles of things like gases and plasma that do exist are so far apart that sound can't really move through them. And thus, the xenomorph kills in silence. But scientists published a paper showing that it's possible to get sound to move through a space with no particles. And the trick is to take these two crystals of zinc oxide, which is a material that produces an electric charge when you have a force applied to it. And given that sound is, again, a physical thing, hitting the crystal with some bars will create this charge that then disrupts the electric fields nearby. And if there are two crystals in the vacuum that share the same electric field, the ripples of that disruption can spread from one crystal to another and be enough to kind of move the sound along.
0: So if I'm traveling through space, I might want to carry a couple crystals if I want my space well, to be
1: Well, <laughs> the catch is that uh, the sound gets warped as it travels most of the time. They they had a few where it was 100% replicated, but not much. And what's more Nobody is going to be using this to send messages through the cosmos. It only works on distances about as long as a single sound wave.
0: (laughs) That's about all we have time for. Maggie Kurth is a science journalist and editorial lead for Carbon Plan. She's based in Minneapolis. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me.